discussion. We've had a look closely at the legal issues. We've looked at the uh, resource economic underbelly of the conflict. And we're now going to move with Kevin Ryan into thinking a little bit more about sort of the other hidden aspects of this, the sort of the deep state or the deep event aspects, the question of deception, the question of instigation or exploitation of events for various purposes. And Kevin, I, I He's um, a whistleblower from the 9-11 event. Uh, he is a board member of International Center for 9-11 Justice, editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, author of Another 19, uh, looking at suspects regarding 9-11. And he's going to be talking to us for about 20 minutes, looking at, in a sense, some, some wider conceptual theoretical um, ideas about structural deep events, state crimes against democracy. Um, and uh, I'd like to welcome you and hand over to you, Kevin. I'm very grateful to be here uh, speaking among such distinguished company. And as Dr. Robinson said, I'm a member of the board of the International Center for 9-11 Justice that's sponsoring the symposium along with UK Column. And the International Center is dedicated to, among other things, Establishing an Accurate Account of the Crimes of September 11, 2001. We're also committed to identifying and studying similar events. Uh, if anyone, in the, uh, anyone listening is not aware of the evidence that 9-11 was a deception, please go to our website, ic911.org, where you can find much information about that. I'd like to begin today, though, with a quote from a physicist, uh, Paul Davies is a quantum theorist who said that it's a new perspective, not a new piece of information that leads to intellectual revolutions. And many of us have found that studying 9-11 and the crimes of 9-11 provides that sort of new perspective, but it's not comfortable. Uh, one way to describe part of this new view is that the oligarchy that rules us terrorizes us on occasion to facilitate its own objectives. And this leads to the questioning of every new narrative that we receive from the mainstream media and from government. And after 9-11, I began to, to question every terrorist act that occurred over a period of 20 years. For example, in 2015, I evaluated all of the terrorist acts across across the world, including in France and Denmark and Australia, the United States. And I found that there was a, a pattern to these terrorist acts uh, that included the fact that the evidence for the official account was very weak and very convenient, that any other evidence that didn't support the official account was ignored. The suspects were, of course, dead immediately. And there was an immediate attempt to associate them with Islam. There had been military or law enforcement exercises that mimicked the events, either coinciding with the events or preceding them. And of course, there was very quick actions in response without thorough investigation. So what, what I found is that 9-11 and the other terrorist events uh, during the global war on terror fit this pattern. And they're called false flag events, which are acts committed with the intent of hiding the true culprits and blaming others. 
Now, false flags are a subset of something called state crimes against democracy, which are a subset of what are called deep events. But I'll generally call them state crimes in this talk, or as with 9-11, I might call them global state crimes. My question is, can we detect a false flag, a state crime against democracy, or a deep event as it's happening? It's important for peace and security to do so, as well as our own personal safety and, and liberty. We also don't want to be part of the harm that's being caused by any state crime. And for these purposes, this is not just an academic exercise, but we do have to define the terms involved in order to detect state crimes. So I'll begin with state crimes against democracy, which was defined by Lance DeHaven-Smith, the professor from Florida State University who coined the term, he said that they are concerted actions or inactions by government insiders intended to manipulate democratic processes and undermine popular sovereignty. So two things jump out to me in this definition. First of all, they can be actions or inactions. So things that should have happened that did not happen could be state crimes. An example might be the fact that the Roosevelt administration knew that a Pearl Harbor attack would occur before it did and allowed it to happen. So inactions, not stopping, not preventing that attack or preventing the people from being killed are an example of a state crime against democracy. And government insiders are involved, according to Professor DeHaven Smith. Now, there's a fine line between government insiders, government officials, and people who go through a revolving door. Uh, but so we'll keep that in mind. But uh, Professor DeHaven Smith listed about two dozen of these SCADs or state crimes against democracy in his writings and his talks. Uh, for him, all of them were U.S. based. Um, they included assassinations of public figures like JFK and RFK, uh, Martin Luther King. They included provocations to drive war like 9-11. And they also included election-related crimes. So one, mo one more thing Dr. DeHaven-Smith did was he categorized them into what he called highly confirmed SCADs kind of mid-level SCADs or, or low-level SCADs. And he did the uh, categorize them as high-level confirmation of being a SCAD. If there were confessions or documents uh, of admission, so documentation or confessions that, that stated they were, in fact, state crimes, uh, made them highly confirmed. If they were cir circumstantial um, but also included included a cover-up, then he would uh, potentially call them a mid-level level confirmed SCAD. That would include, for him, both JFK and the 9-11 crimes. But I think it's important to note that we will not likely get confessions in a timely manner for the next uh, state crime or the latest state crime. But my point is that it makes sense to maintain a skeptical view of any new narrative if the current perspective suggests it might be a state crime and a useful practical perspective or view does not require nailing down every fact that should be continually reevaluated, of course, as new evidence is obtained. 
Uh, one thing that many of us have heard is that such pers perspectives are not within the limits of what's called the spectrum of acceptable opinion. Uh, so we have to be willing to withstand being smeared as a conspiracy theorist, if we might uh, consider such perspectives. The conspiracy theorist term is used to deter others from investigating historic events. And it, it implies that criminal conspiracies among the rich and powerful are impossible or absurd. So it, it, it takes some imagination to buy into that usage. Uh, Professor Peter Dale Scott defined deep events and structural deep events. He said a deep event is one of hidden or underappreciated relevance to deep politics. Now, deep politics is the business of, of deep states. And deep states are covert groups that seek to exercise control over governments or nations. Also, deep events are never presented clearly by the media. And structural means that the event impacts the whole fabric of society. So structural deep event uh, impacts all of society. Uh, I've noticed that many people can accept the idea of an American deep state, a U.S. deep state. But but some people cannot transfer that idea to other countries or to an international or supranational deep state. Professor Scott was not one of those. He, he mentioned a number of times that uh, supranational deep state in his writings and in his interviews. He mentioned several organizations that he felt were representative of an international or supranational deep state, including the Council on Foreign Relations, Cirque Panay, the Safari Club, and the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Professor Scott also identified common modalities of structural deep events. These included the instant identification of the designated culprits, the fact that the suspects had hidden intelligence backgrounds, and that they were protected by intelligence agencies. And this is all very true for the 9-11 crimes. But one drawback to the deep event definition is that it's a retrospective vision, a retrospective vision, meaning some of these modalities are not seen until years later. We can't see what's, of course, what's hidden or falsified. So we may, may not be able to call something, something a structural deep event, but yet at the same time still have enough perspective to see that it's likely to be a state crime. In 2020, I was working as the head of quality control for a gene therapy company. And our laboratories were experiencing what's called false positive results for a test technique called RTQPCR. This is a form of PCR. It's a nucleotide testing for analytes such as viruses. And so it, it, it became interesting to me when I read that uh, Chinese Journal of Epidemiology had published a peer-reviewed paper saying that in China, the testing for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, uh, experienced 50% false positives. Now, that's quite a bit. And that means that every other test that says somebody is infected with SARS-CoV-2 was false. Uh, further confirmatory testing showed that they were not in fact, in, uh, infected. This led me to look into the test kit being manufactured for the US CDC. 
And I noticed uh, reports in the news that the state laboratories using this kit were experiencing a lot of false positives. So I looked into the details of the reagents and used in the kits, the nucleotide sequences and so forth, and found that they were unable to identify a unique coronavirus. Now, the primers and probes were based on parts of the coronavirus, which were highly conserved across different coronaviruses, of which there were already seven common coronaviruses, including the common cold. And so the kit was not testing for a unique coronavirus. Coupled to this, the fact that there were policy changes in many places that led to the misattribution of death. So anyone who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 and um, happened to die, uh, whether they died of, of heart disease or cancer or being in a motorcycle accident, COVID was listed if they tested positive for it. COVID was listed on their death certificate. This obviously inflated the numbers that people used. There was also a redefinition of terms. The terms pandemic and, and later vaccine were redefined for the purposes of, of supporting this agenda that appeared to be in, being implemented. There were oppressive mandates like lockdowns and, and so forth implemented mandatory vaccinations. And soon it became clear to me and many others that COVID was also a global state crime, not just an individual state crime, but uh, a coordinated global state crime. In September 2020, I gave a presentation on parallels between COVID crimes and 9-11 crimes. And I, I listed 11 features and outcomes uh, that were shared among the COVID crimes and the 9-11 crimes. I noted that there was media saturation of fear-based messaging. There was insider trading in both, in both instances. There were exercises that preceded the events that mimicked what was going to happen, similar to the false flag terrorist exercises. There was a failure to investigate the origins of the threat. There was an abuse of science, uh, a widespread censorship of dissent. It was clear that the response would kill far more people than the original threat. There were increased mechanisms of population control. And of course, there was a huge transfer of wealth and a centralization of power. Both the 9-11 crimes and the COVID crimes shared these commonalities. And there was a similar uh, formula for the terrorism events during the global war on terror. So my question is, can we use a pattern like this to more quickly identify when a state crime is being committed? And we don't need confessions before we can identify a state crime for our own purposes. What we also don't need is to convince 100% of our fellow citizens or even a majority. We need to be able to take measures in our own best interests, for example, rejecting narratives or sources of misinformation or declining oppressive state measures like experimental injections. So let's use the Hamas attack on October 7th as an example of a narrative that can be evaluated as a state crime as well. Uh, I noticed that the Israeli ambassador to the UN called these attacks Israel's 9-11, and that raised my attention, I'm sure it did for many people, because that means something quite different to me. But we can ask, do these attacks match the pattern? 
Was there fear-based messaging? I think that's fair to say. And it, even more so, it was in the form of atrocity propaganda. You know, babies having their heads chopped off and people being dismember, dismembered and burned alive. And all of these stories, it, it, it was found out recently, originated with the Netanyahu administration. And, and many, if not all, appeared to be false. Were there rapid actions that taken that facilitated the pre-existing agenda? Uh, it's fair to consider that, I think. And were, did the response kill more people? Obviously, the response has killed 20 times more. As Professor Falk stated, It's this is genocidal uh, in response. Were there exercises beforehand? There were, in fact, exercises conducted by Hamas in July of 2020 that that mimicked what would happen on October 7th. And these exercises were monitored by Israeli uh, intelligence. And some of them has said that the attacks, uh, the, the exercises reflected the attacks fairly well. Was there insider trading? How recently law professors at New York University and at Columbia Uni University published a peer-reviewed article that indicated there was short selling, a form of insider trading on Israeli companies related to the October 7th events. So we could go on, was there censorship, population control, transfer of wealth? Uh, Professor Kubersi made several remarks related to transfer of wealth, resources, natural resources and land. And the next two speakers will likely shed more light on the details. But I would say note that, also note that Al-Qaeda was in a creation of US defense and intelligence agencies, going back to Operation Cyclone in the 1970s. And similarly, Hamas was at least in part created by Israel. So there are some similarities there as well. I would just say at this point, our current perspective should include the possibility that the state of Israel was involved somehow in, in the crimes related to October 7th and that they could be considered state crimes. In any case, we need to know when state crimes are being committed and we need to know as soon as possible as they're occurring to avoid harming ourselves and others. A pattern does exist for state crimes, maybe not the exact pattern that I've described, but whatever the pattern or the set of characteristics is, is, you know, people need to understand it in order to move to more quickly uh, and reliably evaluate future crises for deception. If we want to maintain our lives and liberties, we must examine every new alleged crisis using criteria based on a pattern reflective of the events we know were state crimes. So thank you for your attention. I'll turn it over back over to Dr. Robinson at this time. Thank you very much, Kevin. Um, it's very interesting. It, obviously, this question of structural deep events, question of deception, and so on, this is in the same way that with Atif's presentation is get, looking at these areas which people really don't understand properly about many of these processes, in that case, the economics. In this case, the question of the deep state, the question of these elements of government which are hidden from view. And really, you know, this kind of central idea that, you know, deception, especially with empires, is a central way in which they conduct themselves, how they exercise power. And particularly for liberal empires or empires which like to see themselves as liberal democracies, you, you have to mislead publics ultimately in order to do the necessary dark deeds of empire. 
Um, so an absolutely essential research area. 